0: Lord we just thank for this evening we thank for this opportunity to speak and teach the word we ask you to bless those that hear it and keep it follow allow us to have your spirit lead as we look at this section in Jesus name Amen Isaiah chapter 41 starting at verse 17 when the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue fails for thirst I the Lord will hear them I the God of Israel will not forsake them I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness cedar and and shittim tree and the myrtle and the oil tree. And I will set in the desert the fir tree and the pine and the box tree together that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. We're continuing this chapter and we're looking at God speaking again. He's caring for his people. his, His mercy is being shown all through this chapter. And here he says, when the poor and needy seek water. And here we begin to think that this may be not just physical water, but spiritual water. Throughout the scripture we're told that there will be a hunger and a famine for the word of God. This is what we're seeing in our day and age right now is a famine and hunger for God's Word that are so fewer and fewer churches are teaching, fewer and fewer fewer places are teaching God's Word. And God says, When the poor and needy seek none, and there is, and their tongue fails, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake, will not abandon them. He is there. He is caring. That's the good news we have of God is that he cares for us, that he desires to give us blessings. Not the prosperity gospel where you give and you get rich, but the idea that God wants to bless us just as any parent wants to bless their children and give them more than they ask. A good parent is not just seeking, how little can I give my child? What what is the least I can give my child and keep them happy? God is not looking to give us the least. He is looking to give us multitudes of blessings multitudes of blessings and this is what it says in verse 18 i will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of valley i will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water god wants to bless us and when we get into the word we do see the blessings of god's word he teaches us what we need to know he builds us up he edifies he builds us up in many ways and he just wants to honor and keep us and this is what he says He opens rivers rivers of blessings and fountains in the midst of the valley and he will turn the wilderness into a dry place how many times have we experienced great blessings in the hard places where God opens his word and reveals to us what it is he wants to show us he says I will plant in the wilderness the cedar the shittah, the myrtle and the oil tree and here we see the acacia tree, the shittah and the myrtle tree, and the oil tree, the olive tree, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit flowing upon us. God plants trees in our life. He plants places, it says, this is the marker I want you to pay attention to. Oh, how many times should we be paying attention to what God has in place? We look at the blessings of God, we look at the keeping of God, we look at the just the honor that he puts in our place and how he gives us more than we deserve by grace for by grace are we saved not of works lest any man should boast we're blessed the same way we're blessed because of god's grace and this is such a wonderful thing that god loves us he loves us so much that jesus died for each person in this world even if the person was the only person in the world Jesus would have died for that person. And we need to be able to understand that. We need to really grab hold of God loved me. When I was a sinner, before I was born, God loved me and died with me in mind. And you. They that see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord hath done this, the Holy One of Israel hath created it. Do you as a believer see God's hand around you? It's amazing to me how the world will go and look at us and say, Boy, you guys are just so lucky. Look at how look what good consequences you have in your in your life. Look at all the good that keeps happening in your way. Man, you are just so lucky. No, we are blessed by our Father. He is the one that gives us our blessings. He is the one that honors us. He is the one that brings it is. He creates it the Holy One of Israel, God. He is the one that builds it up. He's the one that keeps us. He's the one that blesses us. And we need to really be able to see God's love for us, his grace for us, giving us everything we don't deserve. He fills our life with waters. He fills our life with the Spirit. He fills our life and takes away our thirst. He tells us, everyone's thirsty, come and get water. Come by and drink freely. We suffer so many times without really thinking about all that we need and realizing that God loves us. God desires to bless us. And it, you know, it's kind of interesting that so many times we think that it is somehow righteous and holy just to be poor. God, just look at me. Look how much I'm suffering and dependent upon you. There's nothing righteous about being poor. There's nothing righteous about being wealthy. God says, I will give you what you deserve through my grace. Through his grace. And he honors us. If you could be following God and be wealthy he'll give us great wealth if we need to be kept humble and and poor he'll keep us poor but God creates our blessings we look at Job and Job had everything and he attributed it to his living right then God allowed Satan to take everything away from him and then he had to come to Job and say Job I'm the one that gives and Job started out right you know will we accept bad from God's hand as well as Not accept bad from God's hand as well as good. He chastised his wife for saying, you know, curse God and die. And yet here we are looking at what God can do. God is our blessing. He is the one that keeps us. He is the one that we seek after. And it's so wonderful that God is in control. He is master. He is savior. He is sovereign. He is in control. He created this world. He put it in motion. And he has not just abandoned it. Yes, Satan came along. Yes, man sinned. But God did not abandon this world to anything. And the picture of Satan having to go before God to try Job is that proof. God had to give him permission. Now sometimes, I've said this many times, sometimes we wish God would give less permission to Satan to do things. But it is what God does. He wants to test us. Will we trust him when everything seems to be wrong, when everything seems to be bad? Will we trust God and say, God, you are in charge. I still trust you to be in charge. What a wonderful place we are when we look at this. God is always in charge, will be in charge, gives us our blessings and keeps us and directs us trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. How does he direct us? Through his word, through understanding, through keeping of his covenants and just seeking him. God, what should I do in this situation? And then learning to just be quiet. Most of the time we don't hear God's word because we are just too noisy. We are too busy trying to figure things out and not letting God speak clearly to us. Verse 27 says, Produce your cause, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things what they shall be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare us things to come. Show us the things that are to come thereafter. That we may know that you are gods, yea, do good and or do evil. That we may know that we may be dismayed and behold it all together. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is not. An abomination is he that chooses you. Here we're going back to what we saw two weeks ago in the idea where he starts talking about the idols. So here he's telling the people, produce your cause. What is your case? What is your dispute? You're in my court of law. You're in, you're in my place to produce your, your case. Explain it. What is it that I have done wrong? What is it that I that I have failed to bless you, God is saying. Bring forth your strong reasons, your defense, says the king of Jacob. You know, and he's saying this. He sits on the throne of judgment and he says, tell me what your problem is go ahead tell me I'm waiting what did he do to Job at the end of Job when Job finally starts complaining he says I just want to stand before God and, and, and plead my case I wish that God were here and God finally came and said all right Job gird up your loins get ready to, to, to give your case and Job shuts up and says I am worthless I am not worth anything here God is challenging him You have a case against me. You don't think I'm right. You don't think I'm just. You don't think I'm holy. Produce your case. And when God stands up and says that, we end up being quiet because we have no case. Many people that are lost will say, well, if there is a God and if I stand before him, I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. When they stand before a holy God and he shows them how guilty they are, they're not going to have a word to say because they're going to realize God is God and God was sovereign. God says that everyone that goes to hell knows that they why they're going there. He will show them every opportunity they had to accept him. He will show them every opportunity they had to see that he is God and they won't have any case to bring bring against him. Verse 22, "Let them bring forth and show us what happened, what shall happen. Let them show the former things, what they shall be" And we may consider and know the latter end or declare to us the things to come. God is saying, hey, you guys that are following idols, if your idols are so good, let them predict the future. Let them even tell the past accurately. And God allows that. He's going, I show you the past. I show you the future. I give you the future in these prophecies. The prophecies are very specific. They're not pie in the sky, maybe if, and if I twist my eyes this way and I squint just right I can see the answers things like Jesus will be born in Bethlehem where was he born Bethlehem that the children would be killed what happened Herod tried to kill the children he would be called out of Egypt God rescued him by sending him to Egypt to call him back out so that he could live in Nazareth to be called a Nazarene you know all these things Jesus God predicting the death of Jesus on the cross hundreds of years before the cross was being used as a penalty. All of these things are out there. God saying that Israel will return. And what has happened? They have returned not once but twice. When Cyrus returned them back to their promised land, when the British government helped to bring them back to Israel in 1948, God says they will return. I will gather all my people and... Israelites and Jews are flocking to the country of Israel because of the heart that God has put into them to serve after Him, to seek their land so that He can protect them that much easier because they're all together. And God says, you idols, you people who follow idols let them predict the future, let them show what's coming in. Verse 23 says, show the things that are to come the hereafter that we may know that you are gods. So show us, give us Give us some prophecy, accurate, real prophecies, very specific. And then he says, oh, by the way, do good or do evil. It didn't matter to God. Do anything. And we think about this. Back in the beginning, he says, the carpenter encourages a goldsmith. And they soothed it with a hammer and they chiseled it and they covered it with gold. And they nailed it up. And God says to those idols, do something. You stick of wood, you you altar of idol and gold, idol. Do something. I don't care whether it's good or bad, just do something. Kind of amazes me sometimes that people will sit and worship a hunk of wood, worship a golden statue. And yet, how many times in our day and age do we do very much the same thing? We go out and we worship sports, we worship work, we worship our family. At least in those cases, they might be able to talk back to us, but they're still not going to do good or evil. They're just things. And we end up worshiping, spending more time with those than we do with God, the real God, the God of the universe. We need to be so careful. Anything that takes the place over God is an idol. In the commandments, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing else before God family work idols TV Entertainment hobbies nothing is to be placed before God. How do we know what we? What has been placed before God several ways we can look at our schedule? How much time does God get? We give work 40 hours a week at least maybe 50 or 60 we give our, Many people give their time in, to television for another 20, 30 hours, 40 hours a week, maybe, five, maybe four or five hours a day so that they're pushing 28 to, to 35 hours a day, maybe even more. You know, what is your time spent in? How much time does God get? Does he get at least a tithe of your time? How about your money? What do you spend your money on? If we opened up our checkbooks and took a look, what does God get does he at least get the tithe of our income does he get special features with us or can we look and say our hobby gets the bulk of our money our family gets the bulk of the money and we keep those what is number one in our life our money and our time will definitely show that and we need to be careful about that no other gods before him and it says do something so that we can be dismayed that we can be amazed and behold it all together. Let us look. And then he says what is really true. Behold you are nothing. And your work of naught. An abomination is he that chooses you. God says these idols are worthless. They're junk. They're just an item. Another place God says you go out to the woods. You cut down a tree. With half of it you make an idol. And with, and, and with half of it you, eat, you, you cook your food. And people bow down to these idols. God says, they're nothing. They can't hear you. They can't answer you. They can't do anything. They're not going to do good. They're not going to do bad. They are just junk. And they are worthless. Do we really realize that God is the one that's worthy of worship? Do we put him as number one in our life? Do we really look at him and say, God, I want. To follow you and only you and again how much time do you put in with God how much time do you spend reading the word how much time do you spend listening to teaching how much time do you spend worshiping God are you giving at least the tithe to God God demands the tithe and then he says give me bring in your tithes and your offerings and give them cheerfully God doesn't want them if you're not going to give them cheerfully He doesn't need our money. He owns everything. And yet he says, give me of your abundance. Give me the tithe. When have we given God enough? When it hurts. This is what's been taught so many times. God's not even just asking for a tithe. If we can give a tithe, then it's just surplus income. That's not what God wants. He wants to say, are you willing to trust me with what you give? Are we giving God enough that it says, God, if, I don't, if you don't bless me, I cannot make it. So here it is, God. I'm putting my trust in you. This is very important. Verse 25 says, I have raised one up from the north, and he shall come from the rising of the sun. He shall call upon my name, and he shall call upon the princes as the mortar and as the potter treadeth clay who hath declared from the beginning that we may know and before time that we may say he is righteous yea there is none that shows yea there is none that declares yea there is none that hears your words who is it that that God sent he sent his son he sent his son in righteousness the hill of Mount Moriah to die for our sins to declare God's righteousness, to declare God's truth, to declare God's mercy, to declare God's grace. Jesus came to show us God in the flesh. He was God, is God, always will be God, and He dwelled among men to show us what God is like. Do we really understand this? God became flesh. He became not only flesh. It would be one thing for us to think of God stepping out of heaven and becoming a, a strong warrior, a mighty man. But what did he do? He came as a baby. Totally weak, totally dependent on parents for everything. To be fed, to be cleaned, to be clothed, to be taught to speak, to be taught. The God of the universe became a child that was weak and needed defending. And how did God defend him? He sent Mary and Joseph away from the land of Egypt, Israel to go to Egypt to protect him from Herod. He lives in, in Egypt, and then they come, and the angel comes to Joseph and says, Those that seek the child's life are dead, return to Is, Israel. And they returned to Israel and went back to Nazareth. And there Jesus was raised. There he was raised. So when people looked at him, they go, this is a Nazarene. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. And yet, if they had looked at his history, they would have found out he was born in Bethlehem just as the Messiah had to have been. And because of God's prophecies, things that made no sense to them, all of a sudden coalesced in this mighty, powerful coming together of God-reaching men and God-honoring men. Because of how much he loves us and keeps us what a wonderful blessing it is that God loves us while we were his enemy God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us he didn't love he didn't die for us because we loved him and that we were good and we deserved it he died because he chose to redeem us to buy us back And it is so amazing when we think about this. God created man knowing that man was going to sin, knowing that Jesus would have to come out of heaven onto this world, live a perfect life as a human being, and be crucified by men so that he could buy us back and pay for our sin. It is so hard to understand, so hard even sometimes to believe that God loves us that much and then how hard is it for us to love people at times they get on our nerves they're not nice to us and we just get all bent out of shape it is so wonderfully tremendous that God did not do that to us he could have just said oh they're not worth it look how bad they are I'm not going to redeem them and there would have been no problem with that Jesus is it says in Verse 36, uh, 26. He is declared from the beginning. In Revelation we're told that Jesus was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And Jesus has been declared right from the beginning. When Adam and Eve sinned, God came to him and said, I have the Redeemer. He's going to crush the serpent's head. The serpent will hurt strike his foot, but he will be victorious as he crushes that foot as the head of the serpent, and he will win and redeem my people. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was not an afterthought for God. It was not a shocking thing. Oh, my people have sinned. Now what am I going to do? Jesus was going to be crucified from before the foundation of the world, and it is hard to understand. Why would God go through all of that? The cost of the pain... Jesus paid for our sin. He became sin and when he became sin the Father and the Holy Spirit turned their back from on him and could not have fellowship with the person they had had fellowship with all of eternity past and The suffering and pain that Jesus felt when they when they were turned over and he had sin in and he had become sin and the Father and the Spirit had to turn their back on Jesus and honor was lo- left from him and he had to be by himself. He died on the cross in agony alone for the first time in all of eternity. He died in agony alone without the father, without the spirit's fellowship. We can't even begin to feel the pain that that cost. We can't even begin to understand the pain that the crucifixion cost when the father and son and the holy spirit were separated. And no longer together, no longer one, all to buy us back, all to redeem us. The first shall say unto Zion, Behold, behold them, and I will give to Jerusalem one that bringeth good tidings. For behold, for I behold, and there was no man, even among them, there was no counselor, that when I asked of them could answer a word. Behold, they are all vanity. Their works are nothing. Their molten images are, gone, are wind and confusion. Jesus says here, God says here, The first shall say to Zion, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, Behold, behold, I give to Jerusalem one that brings good tidings. We see the picture of Jesus coming to Jerusalem to bring good tidings, to give the message of God. Just before he dies, he goes up on, Mount, up on Mount Olive and he comes down and he looks at Jerusalem and he weeps and says, how I would have gathered you like a hen gathers its chicks, you who destroy the prophets and kill, kill the righteous, knowing that he was going to die in just a few days. And he looks down upon them and he weeps because their hard hearts knowing that they weren't going to receive him, and yet weeping because of that hard-heartedness. How many times does God weep over us because we get so hard-hearted? We don't necessarily follow what he says to do. We are so rebellious. We are so hard-hearted. And God has to speak to us. When we're soft and tender, we read the word, and we go, God, thank you. Forgive me of my sins and guide me. And then we get our hearts just a little hard, and God has to come in with a sledgehammer and break up our hard ground, plow it over with the Word, and speak into our hearts, giving us conviction, giving us a changed heart. And He brings us good tidings. And when we live according to His life, we bring good tidings to the world, and they get to see God in action. They get to see the love of God in action, the mercy of God in action, when we live according to the way God wants us to live. And it says, "Behold, there, and there was no, for I beheld, and there were no man even among them. There was no counselor that when I asked of them, they could answer a word." So God says, "I, I challenge them. I challenge them to present their case, and there's nobody there." nobody who can present the case nobody who can defend nobody that can rise up and this is the world the world will say I've got a case against God and I've shared this with us so many times when people say you know the Bible's full of contradictions the answer that you need to ask them is show me one give me a contradiction let's examine what you're saying and and see if it's true you know well we just can't believe God because science has proved that there is no God And I will ask them, show me where science has proved that there's no God. Show me. Usually they'll point to evolution. They go, science has proved evolution's true. And I'll go, no, it hasn't. It's still a theory. And it isn't proven. And it is not even a very good theory. It does not match true science. But you know, it all comes down to what are you going to believe? Are you going to believe that there is no God or that there is a God? We know, according to the laws of thermodynamics, that there must be a God because it says that energy is neither created nor destroyed, which means it either has always existed, or it had a special, non-physical, supernatural start. The second law says that all energy tends toward empathy, entropy, which means if this world had eternal energy, it has always existed, it would be dead. Now it has been pointed out by many scholars. Well well, that is only true in a closed system. The universe is a very large closed system but it is a closed system and we need to recognize that. So if matter is eternal, we, we should be in a dead environment. Many of you go, well, we're in the middle of e- we're in the middle of it. No, we can't be in the middle of eternity. If it stretches back forever, we cannot be in the middle of eternity. There is no such thing as the middle of eternity. Eternity has no beginning, no end and therefore no middle. And therefore, we cannot have this saying, we know that there is a supernatural start to energy. Not always existed. Now, does that prove our God started it? Not necessarily. Then we have to look at the claims of all the different religions and supernatural possibilities. And Christianity best fits that avenue. And it goes on to say in the very end here, Behold, they are all vanity. Their works are nothing. Their molten images are wind and confusion. People are vanity. Every activity we do without God is vain. God is the only one that will fill the emptiness of our heart, and we need to be able to understand it takes God to fill the emptiness. People try to fill it with everything. People will fill, try to fill it with wealth. They'll try to fill it with fame. They'll try to fill it with family. They'll try to fill it with activity. They'll try to fill it with nothing and they can never fill it. They will try to fill it with alcohol and drugs and sex and and all manner of sin and not fill the emptiness of their heart until they finally come to God. So the question we have before us as we look at this is, do you trust God? Have you come to the recognition that you are nothing without God, that you are following vanity and emptiness without God? All that emptiness that you feel needs to have God to fill it. Is it really hard to do? No, it's easy. John 3:16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loved us. And His love gave His Son as a perfect gift so that we could have eternal life. Romans 3.23 says, "For For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. All of us, every single person who has ever lived on this world except for Jesus, sins. And most of us sin a lot. And God still loves us. Even though our destination without Him is hell. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Without God's purchase of us, we would be in hell. How do we get saved? We recognize that we're a sinner. We recognize that we deserve hell. But God has a gift. He's holding it out. He died for our sins. He paid for our sins. God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He wants us to be able to be received by him, accepted by him, and accept his gift. When does a gift become yours? When you reach out and take it and accept it. I can hold a gift out to you all day, but unless you're ready to take that gift, it is not yours. I I consider it yours. It's yours. But if you don't take it, it's not going to be possessed by you then it says if any man shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead you shall be saved for with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with his mouth confession is made unto salvation we confess Jesus Jesus I need your help I'm a sinner destined for hell without you I accept your gift and then we believe That doesn't just mean, oh, I believe there's a Jesus. I believe he died. It is put all my trust, all your trust. No plan B, no plan C. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, if he doesn't have this gift that he says he has, without him, I'd be nothing. Without him, I'd surely fail. You know, We need to be able to reach out and say, God, I trust you and you only. Come into my life and fill me. This is very important. If you've heard this message and you don't know God, say this prayer today. Confess Him as your Lord. Seek Him. Be His child. Follow after Him. If you do that, find a Christian brother or sister and tell them that I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And ask them to help you learn from the Word of God. Help them to help you find a church. If you can't find a church, contact us. Send an email to us and we will help you find a church wherever you're at to try to grow and follow Christ as a disciple and follower of His. Because that is what's important. God does not expect us just to confess His name and wallow around in nothing. He wants to see us grow. He wants to see us mature. He wants to see us gain our place through discipleship. Learn from God follow God Lord we just thank you for this message and those that are hearing Lord we ask that many will take and accept you as their Lord from this message and that they will follow you into discipleship and grow and find good churches and be able to seek after you and we just thank you in Jesus name amen